Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. I'm Carrie Donahue, and this is Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. And I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. Oh, hey, Alec, you're back. Back, back? Yes, Carrie, summer's over, and I have returned. Did you miss me? Of course. Well, listen, thanks to you and the rest of the team for hosting our archival episodes over the summer. And now it's your turn to highlight some favorites, right? Yes, we're going to revisit two conversations I loved. Daryl Hall from Hall & Oates, and Danny Bennett, Tony Bennett's son and longtime manager. Sounds like a great pairing. Glad you're back, Alec. Oh, and Kerry, before you go, we should tell listeners, for the next couple of months, we'll be releasing episodes every other week. Good idea. And done. Take it away, Alec. Now on to two of my favorite conversations from the archives. Tony Bennett has a timeless style. He celebrated his 95th birthday this summer with two sold-out shows at Radio City Music Hall, and as always, he brought the house down. He even has a new album coming out this fall called Love for Sale. Tony Bennett planned to play more live dates, but the legendary showman recently received a devastating warning from his doctor, no more live shows. That's going to be a shift for Tony's son, Danny Bennett, as well. Danny has been his father's manager for decades, a job he describes as managing a legacy as much as a career. But first, we're revisiting my 2019 conversation with Daryl Hall, with partner John Oates. Hall and Oates is the best-selling vocal duo in history. They have seven platinum albums and another six gold ones. They made the Billboard Hot 100 34 times with mega-hits like Maneater, Rich Girl, You Make My Dreams Come True, and I Can't Go For That. Daryl Hall has had a sort of second career on television with two shows, Live From Daryl's House and Daryl's Restoration Overhaul on the DIY Network. Daryl Hall started singing on the streets in Philadelphia. So I I started at a really young age doing, you know... Like busking. More like the doo-wop, you know, right. street corner music. Right. There was no instruments involved. 
acapella and all that. And uh, it was always very racially integrated, you know, is that whole thing. And uh, then when I went to Philly, I had already been involved in that stuff. And there was this place called Mitten Hall where all everybody hung out. It was like the place where the whole Temple University went. And people used to stand in the corners and sing. It was, it was that's, That kind of stuff was still going on. So I just walked up one day and started singing along with these strangers. And that's how I got into Philadelphia and started... But, but, uh, but at a time when, in my mind, when I think about Philadelphia, then I think about a lot of racial difficulties and move and, you know, historically, not, not for you, I'm saying the city has always had a kind of a racial stratification, it seems like. What was it about you that these people <laughs> welcomed you uh, with open arms I to sing up, with them? I, I grew up in, in a very racially integrated environment. You know, in, in Pottstown, there's a big black community, and my, my parents best friends lived right in the middle of the black neighborhood. So I, as, as a kid, I'm talking like kid, kid for the summer, I would be over there and, and and all my waking hours, really, I would be hanging out with white and black kids together. So the music that I grew up with was that, you know, R&B and soul music. Uh, It was really my baby food, you know, and and it just went that way all through my And your dad, was he musically inclined? He was in a vocal group, sang, he sang like gospel vocal group. And uh, he, uh, I learned a lot about harmony from him. And uh, my mother was a musician. She uh, did other kinds of music. You know, she did like musicals and she was in a band. So it was a very musical environment. Let me just put these cards on the table, which is, you are one of the 10 greatest male vocalists in all of history of rock and roll. I mean, you are, and, and what kills me is like how you've stayed because a lot of these guys have to drop at a key and we interview a lot of my, you know, you name it. And only you and Bono pretty much sound the same now almost <laughs> first of all i do on stage i do drop it a half a key now ha okay i do so i i admit it but but you know what that's that's cool too it gives me more room to play around up top um but uh you know my voice has changed a lot over the years you listen to those records that i made you know the rich girl and all those kind of songs i'm like a little boy compared to the way i sing now i i have i sort of have the voice now i always wanted to have it's that bigger masculine voice you know and um yeah so but i so i i like how my voice has evolved and i haven't lost any of the stuff that i had i just it's just sort of got bigger and wider where did you start singing when did singing begin? my mother was as i said she was in a band but she was also a vocal teacher and things like that and she uh, encouraged you yeah and she it was sort of always there and she taught me how to sing did they both play instruments yeah my mother played piano and uh um I started taking piano lessons around five and uh, took lessons all the way through. And then I, I unfortunately was, uh, got in, uh, was, I won't say I got into, I was forced, forced to play the trombone for a while, <laughs> but uh, that didn't last long. But uh, no, it's, it, I've been playing piano since five. And then I started playing guitar. I'm self-taught doing guitar. You taught yourself on the guitar. Yeah. How old were you when you picked up the guitar for the oh, first time? Oh, maybe late teens, early twenties. And when you go, then you go to Temple to study music. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, at first I was going to go. I didn't think there was any money in uh, in in music at all. It didn't even occur to me, uh, and to have a career in music. So I was going to be. I was a. I wanted to be a psychiatrist. 
Why? <laughs> because I was really interested in the life of the mind. And I was up against these. I didn't realize in my naivete that you had to be a doctor to do all yeah, these things. And a medical degree. <laughs> I quit and, that one too. And, and then I was up against all these kids that were like pre-med. And I failed miserably. It was just horrible. I went, this is not for me I had the all. same problem. I was like, I, had to, I have to study chemistry. Just to, I just want to talk to people. Yeah, man. What happened was I did that for a year and then I switched to the Temple Music School. And they, you know, they let me in and... And, uh, and you finished, you graduated. And I finished. Well, I, I quit <laughs> I quit five weeks before graduation because I was a student teacher and I was up, you know, early in the morning, all day doing all that stuff. And then I had a, 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 a bar gig playing, playing music in a bar band at night till two o'clock in the morning. So that didn't work out so well. And the teacher said, you know, you have to choose one or the other. And I thought to myself, do I want to be a music teacher or do I want to be a musician for real? And there was no choice in my head. So I said, okay, see you later. Bye. When you uh, leave Temple, when you leave, when you finish school, mm -hmm. what happens after that? During my time in Temple, as I said, the whole thing was sort of simultaneous. I was going to music school, but I was also hanging out with Tommy Bell. And uh, who is that for people who don't know? Tommy Bell was was the the producer and writer behind oh uh, a great number of the Philadelphia sound, the stylistics, and the Delphonics, and people like that. Um, he was very very influential in the sound of Philadelphia, and he sort of took me under his wing. He was not that much older than me, but but. I would just sit around and listen to him write, and he was an amazing writer. And uh, so I was friendly with him. And then I, I also, I, I had a band that sort of came out of that thing I was talking about in, in Mitten Hall, and we called ourselves the Temp Tones because we were at Temple University. Everybody thought it was the Temptations, but it was because <laughs> we were at Temple. And uh, we did a talent show at the Uptown Theater, which was not that far from the university, uh, from the campus. And it was on what they used to call the Chitlin Circuit. And, you know, every soul group on earth came to the uptown. It was like the Apollo. And uh, I used to hang out there. And uh, just like the Apollo, they had talent shows. And we won the talent show. And James Brown's band was the house band backing us up. That was I was like 18 years old. I'm singing Ooh Baby Baby with James <laughs> Brown's band in back of me. <laughs> and we won the talent show, and the prize was you got to record a record with Gamble and Huff. The songwriters. Songwriter producers, who Gamble and Huff and Tommy Bell basically created what the world knows as the sound of Philadelphia. Right. I did a record with Gamble and Huff, and it came out and, it, and went on the charts in WDAS in Philadelphia, the R&B station. And uh, I was doing all this while I was going to school. And so I became part of that whole scene. That's the, I started hanging out at Sigma Sound and with studio musicians. And I, I wanted to be a studio musician. You know, I want to learn things from them. So that's what I was doing during my student years. And in, in the meantime, I met this guy, John Oates, who Where? was in, in Temple University. We he was met, going to Temple? Yeah. We, we, we were Where's he from? He's from about 15 miles from me in <laughs> North Wales, Pennsylvania, just northwest of, northwest of uh, Philadelphia. So um, uh, we were both promoting our singles because he, he managed to get a single too on Kenny Gamble's label. Uh, he had a group called The Masters. And we were both promoting our single at this place called the Adelphi Ballroom. And uh, before either one of us went on, uh, it was a gang fight broke out. This whole thing went down. It's typical Philadelphia. And it was on a, it was on a second floor and, you know, people started whipping chains out and, you know, the whole, you know, typical, 
like I say, tip, all too typical of Philadelphia at that time. And uh, we said, okay, time to leave, time to leave. So I didn't even know the guy. And we both wound up in this little elevator going downstairs. I said, okay, we just dodged that bullet. And, and, and I was looking at him and said, hey, so who are you, you know? And I found out right then that he was also at Temple. I said, oh, man, okay, you know, because I figured kindred spirits here. And uh, we sort of got to know each other that way. Uh, and um, then I needed, I don't, this is a little vague in my mind, but I needed a roommate because I was, I, I wanted to have an apartment in Philly and he volunteered. So we, we got this hovel. We just kept moving together. Yeah, we, we moved in and we started sharing apartments. And we did that on and off through school without any idea that we were going to work together. We, we, there was no plan, you know. We just both he liked. was your roommate. He was my roommate. <laughs> he yeah, wasn't you your know, partner. He was not my partner or anything. And uh, so after after school was over, I became a full time studio musician at Sigma for the whole Sound of Philadelphia people. And John went to Europe for a little while, came back, had no place to live, and moved in again with me and my new. I guess she was my wife at the time, and uh, we we renovated this 18th century house right in the center of Philadelphia. Lived in it for a while, and that's when we decided. Was that the beginning of that bug for you as well? Yeah, okay. yeah. We're going to talk about that. Yeah, and uh, uh, we decided, okay, we were in close proximity, so we just started playing together and said, well, maybe we should try doing something. Let's share a stage. Let's, uh, you play your songs, I'll play my songs, and we'll do them together. When does songwriting begin for you? When do you decide you want to write songs? Around, I, th I think I wrote a song when I was about 14, and I, I thought, okay, maybe I can write a song. And the, I, I do remember the name of it. It was called I Broke My Own Heart. Now, is that a weird title? <laughs> no, I like it, actually. <laughs> Haven't we all done that? Yes. I know I have. But at 14, what did I know? Well, yeah, you were a little advanced. <laughs> that was your first song. That was the first song, I Broke My Own Heart. And when did you write your first song that you recorded? Uh, that was a, that song, Girl, I Love You, with the Temptones. And uh, that was... I don't know, how, how was I, 19, I guess? The recording contract you got from winning the, the prize. Yeah, yeah. So when do you and he start to, how do you and he fuse to become what you become? We didn't, it, it, we sort of, it's hard to describe. We, we, were, we were just trying to write, we tried to write songs together, but it was mostly, he would write songs and I would write songs and we'd, and we'd do them on stage together. And we played at this place called um, World Control Headquarters, which held about 100 people. And we became sort of a fixture there. There was a, another guy, you could do anything you wanted there. I would sit there with my Wurlitzer piano and my mandolin, and John would play acoustic guitar, and we would just tell stories and play songs. It was, it, it, it was sort of in that folky tradition, but it wasn't folk music. It was something else. And uh, we did that, and we, got, we started getting a following doing it. And I remember one of the first things that happened was it was all kids, right? Because we were, we were kids. But then these older people started coming, what I thought were older people, like 40, 50, you know, and I'm 35. Like, and I remember, and this is the late 60s, and uh, I remember saying to John, you know, this is really strange. Older people like our music too, not just people our own age. Maybe we're doing something different. I actually said that to him. I'll never forget it. And now, of course, it's the reverse. Younger kids like what I do, and the older people have lived with it, right? So it's always been multi-generational and multicultural. 
There's something I about think people music. like what's good. I, well, I don't know. Whatever it is. It's, I think some of your songs are pretty good. Well, me, me too. <laughs> you can say that. Yeah. People sure. like what's good. So yeah. the multi-generational yeah, thing, that it, happens. Yeah, yeah. I guess it does. For sure. I'm assuming uh, that um, you meet someone who's a producer. Like, is there, is there a producer that comes into your life that takes you to the next level, that helps you make the sound that becomes your sound? Yeah. Who's that? Uh, Arif Martin. The producer, arranger behind Aretha Franklin, and you name it, uh, uh, Donny Hathaway, Aretha Franklin, uh, and, oh man, and on and on and on and on. I can't even tell you his, his, his. What label was he with? Atlantic Records. With Atlantic. And he found you where? Uh, well, that's another long story, but I we will, have time. I'll, I'll try and 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 truncate it. But we were locked in this messed up relationship with a songwriter producer guy in Philadelphia. We were trying to get an album deal and he was failing us miserably. And uh, he was involved with Chapel Music in New York through his catalog. And we went up to New York one time and met this young kid who was only 20 named Tommy Matola, <laughs> two years younger than us. And, and, he, and he said, uh, hey, well, uh, he said, this guy's not doing anything for you. Let me do something for you. He's 20 years old. Right. And uh, we went, sure, why not? So he had connections because he had an office the size of this table in Chapel Music, but he did have uh, contacts. So he sent us out to California to have a chapel rep take us around to various people in California. And we sort of were playing for him, auditioning, basically. And uh, we found this guy, Earl McGrath, who was a really great guy and was in, uh, into sort of developing new talent. And he wanted to sign us immediately which was great. And then he was connected with Ahmed Erdogan and all those people in Atlantic. And he sent us back to Atlantic and we auditioned for Ahmed. And I sat there at a piano and the, the, half the keys were stuck. They wouldn't work. <laughs> so I'm trying. Swell. I, I, you know, it was, this was like my big, my big day. I'm in front of Atlantic Records. Yeah. I couldn't play. Ahmed I, Erdogan. I, I, yeah. I think I had the flu. Too. Somebody spilled molasses yeah. on the piano. <laughs> So I played badly, and, and we sang a couple songs, and uh, I thought, okay, we blew that completely. Two days later, I found out that they had called Errol and said, Errol, we want these guys. They're not going to be on your label. They're going to be on our label. And, and they signed us to Atlantic Records. So then we were off to a start of some sort. We were immediately thrust into, I mean, I completely was thrust into a different group of musicians, all those Atlantic studio musicians, uh, everybody from Dr. John to uh, Purdy, you know, Ralph McDonald to, you, you name it, the, that, that whole New York R&B scene. And they were all unbelievable musicians. And they're the guys that played on our first records. Uh, especially on the abandoned luncheonette record. I mean, that's the musicianship on that record is unbelievable. So I was in that world, in that scene. I mean, Aretha was wandering in and out, and Bob Dylan was wandering in and out. I mean, we're just like, what's going on? It's here? a big machinery. You know, I mean, it's, it's it's Atlantic Records. Back when people were buying records, they choose you if they believe in you, and they get their marketing behind you. It's kind of hard to fail, correct? If well, you have some talent. It, well, it wasn't quite like that. Not in those days. It was, it was still a lot freer and looser. And I remember Ahmet saying to me and John, he said, just, just, make, just make music, we'll figure out how to sell it. That's what he said. And uh, he said, don't worry about hits or don't worry about, you know, that, that's- He that. said, don't worry about hits. Yeah, yeah. 
literally said that. Don't worry about hits, man. You just, you just do what you do. We'll make it a hit. Just do what you do. But they didn't. That was the thing. We were a little strange for the world at that time. We were, I won't say we were ahead of our time. We were out of our time. But so we- Why? T- I don't know. What, what, what was Well, first selling? of all, we were doing a hybrid of Philadelphia soul and other kinds of R&B and mixed with this other eclectic kind of thing that John brought in, you know, like country music and all kinds of other stuff, singer, songwriter kind of things. And- Dance music. Uh, you name it. It was- hybridized and 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 also in those days they had no idea how to label us because we were popular on black radio not even known on white radio and the whole idea of musical integration was not ready for the world i mean we were we were pioneers in that daryl hall Did you know that there are more than 250 episodes in the Here's the Thing archive? If you like these kinds of in-depth conversations with other actors, policymakers, and performers, go to heresthething.org and have a look around. After the break, we'll hear more of my conversation with Daryl Hall. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual-wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. It was 1976... Hall and Oates were signed to Atlantic Records, but they didn't have any big hits to show for it. They soon left for RCA, which quickly released Sarah's Smile. It became an R&B hit and then a crossover hit. From there, Hall and Oates took off. 
I enjoyed touring, especially because we became popular all over the world very early. Right? I mean, England embraced us like from the beginning, from 70, I think 74, 75 is when we first started playing in, in England. And so we started doing a lot of touring in Europe. And that, it just, you know, opens up your brain. I and mean, we're kids, right? We had a lot of fun. How did out it there. change you and him? Sex symbolism, rock stardom, it was fame. If you're in your mid to late 20s and, and you're running around the world and people are throwing their whatever at you, yeah. uh, you indulge, that, unless you're crazy. Right. <laughs> you know, I took advantage of, of whatever was uh, the opportunities. Were. I was having fun, man. I was having fun. But, you know, the one thing, though, I was never into cocaine. Right. I just didn't. I, I have a very uh, sensitive nervous system. It doesn't work for me. So do I. But I didn't let that stop. Uh, well, I, I did. Right. It, it just, I didn't like it. So you guys were dancing around coked out of your brains, and I, I was completely you were home sleeping, <laughs> taking a nap. No, I wasn't sleeping. You sleeping. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll without the drugs. But when you, so you go on tour, do you get sick of it? Do you get sick of the attention? Do you get sick of going on the road? You mean like, now? No, I mean then, meaning when oh, you're then. cresting and everything's, and you're becoming this huge musical I, act. I lived at one the, point, you would look at each other and go, I really want to stop for a while. You know, it's funny. I look back on it, and it, it feels like I had more time off than I do now. I don't know why. It, 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 I, I must have. It, I felt like I, I would go out and I would tour and I would go balls to the wall for whatever, a month. And we'd work, you know, every day. There's no days off. Right? Yeah. And, and I would take it all in, everything, you know, stay up all, stay up late, do, you know, do everything you can imagine. And uh, then, then we'd stop. And then we wouldn't be doing anything other than go into a studio, go into studio or write and prepare to go. Do you studio. find that you go on the road more now, like most acts go on the road more now? Because that's really the only I'm way a, you can make real money. I, yeah. I mean, no I one's buying any records. I, I, I tour all the time now. Right. And uh, I, I, I'm busy, man. I'm, I'm much busier now than I was. In fact, I don't have time to make a record. How's that? I've, I've been trying to make a record and I have to do it in little dribs and drabs and uh, starts and stops. And uh, it's, it, it to try and get into a flow is really, really hard. Was there, a, was there, and I'm not assuming there was, was there a spot in your career where you sat there and you go, this is it, man. We, we, this is the top. That happens very seldom, but it did happen. There was a, a period of, a very small period of time in 1985 where we did We Are the World. I played, I reopened the Apollo Theater with The Temptations, uh, Live Aid, and uh, just we'll just use those three things, all within a month and a half. And... I remember thinking to myself, okay, I, I feel like I'm here. I, I'm doing something right now that I know is a significant thing. This is and it. I'm experiencing it. I'm, I'm here now. Be here now. Yes, that's, that's one of the few times it's ever happened to so me. So take me through, just, just in a shorthand, what the tour is like in terms of the evening, the show. Is there a prep you do? Is there, kind of a, is there, is there a vocal thing you do? You don't talk all day? Is something you what drink? I what I do is I lay in bed all day. I, I rest. I, I just read all day, hang out, don't do anything. Uh, about, oh, late afternoon, I might power nap. And then I wake up and drink a whole shitload of tea, to, green tea, to, to really wake myself up. Yeah. And it's all this preparation toward this crescendo. Yeah. And then I get to a gig never more than an hour before the show. Put on my makeup, talk to the band, Laugh with the band, have a couple drinks, hit the stage, and uh, that's that's the same band all the time. 
Same band. Same band. Do Same much band. rehearsals involved for you guys? Not much. Not much. No, we've, Everybody we've been together a long time. We know we really seldom rehearse. Most of the work you do touring now is with John or 50-50? Uh, no, most of it's with John. Most with John. Yeah, I do do the occasional solo stuff, but no, it's mostly with John these days. Right now, anyway. And is, is, is scheduling between the two of you, is it, is it easy? You both are in the same kind of groove. Yeah, you know when we, you want to go out? We time do, of year you want to go do, out, time yeah, you don't? Yeah, we, we work this out. We both like the same kind of touring schedule. schedule. We're very, it still works. We're very much the same when it comes to that. Yeah, yeah. We, we have a good relationship, John. And I do my TV show. That's, that's something else. How the hell do you get people to come to a house in upstate New York? You tell me, man. It, it's The people you've had on it's this one, effing show. It's one of the most gratifying things ever in my life that I could get Smokey Robinson to come to Amini in New York, up there, which is 20 miles north of here. Take time How off his schedule start? to come and do it. He was one of the first ones. Whose idea was it to do this thing? Mine. And how did it start? I just thought, let's just turn everything upside down. Uh, you know, instead of me- You had a big studio up there. Yeah, and, and every, everything is opposite. In, instead of me going around the, the, the world, I bring the world to me. There is no audience. And all these people would just come. And I, I only had this internet show. It was, it was very small. Nobody knew about it. But these people were coming from all over the world to do this. Then it caught on, and then it became a little easier to book. But still, do you release the recordings of these? Can be, or is only lives? Because, because otherwise you have to what, pay them and pay rights to them? Well, or? one thing people don't realize is how expensive the show is because of clearances. Right. We had such a hard time with that over the years, especially in the beginning. Once we established it, then it was sort of okay. But it was really, really difficult because I was in there, you know, totally innocent. I said, okay, this is promotion for the record companies, yeah. promotion for the artists. Why should they not want this? Yeah. But they were looking at it like we were Napster, you know, like we were taking money out of their pockets. And I was like, what money am I taking out of your pocket? I'm helping you. I'm giving you free promotion. But Forget about it. We had to deal with lawyers. We had to deal with record people. We had to deal with managers. And everybody wanted their thing. And the clearances, it, it became so high cost. It's a very, it's a very hard show to put you on. You haven't cut a record of it. You haven't cut no, any kind no, of No, no, that would, thing. my God, that would be so no hard street. to do. Would it really? It, it would be almost impossible because so many people would have to get things. Everybody's publisher would have to get something. Every artist, every label, and oh my God. But so I guess my idea that I have for you, I have an idea I want, I want to produce with you. I guess my idea for you isn't going to fly. What would that be? But I want, having seen the Springsteen thing, what a phenomenon that was. And my idea for you was to do at Daryl's house on Broadway. You're on Broadway. Oh. And for one week, each artist comes on and plays a whole week of shows with you. And every week it changes. It's another group. And you do it on Broadway. Well, that would be doable. Okay, here, here's our Broadway story. We, we've been spending five years. We got to the point where this guy uh, was, was writing a book, uh, the guy that did Rock of Ages, Chris Dorenzo. Somebody's throwing down a shitload of money, and we read Chris's book, and everybody thinks it sucks. So we're back to square one after five years. So I'm ready for, uh, I'm ready for new ideas. You're welcome. Uh, thank you. That is a good idea. You're, you're making a fuck of a lot of work for me, though. <laughs> I know you don't want to work as hard. Do you think I, I, I want to work? You want to flip houses. I, I hate Broadway, man. You got to play all those fucking days and two days and Wednesday we'll or whatever. We'll make it, it as easy for you two, as two possible. Shows. Oh, well, let's see. You let's owe see about the that. public. You owe it to your oh, public. Oh, yeah, man. I owe it. Yeah. 
on that show, there's some people I see who come there and they really kind of rise to the occasion. Yes. You almost, so somebody who I know a little bit, I worked with them years ago, is Kevin Bacon. And I've always had Kevin pegged as somebody who's as cool as a cucumber. And yet even Kevin, when he's singing with his brother, when the morning comes yeah, with yeah. you, you can almost see a piece of Kevin. There's a little glint of him. It's like, I can't believe I'm singing when the morning comes with Daryl Hall. That was a fun show. I mean, Kevin lives near here. And uh, I've known Kevin outside of uh, this stuff. But uh, there's two different kinds of people. There's brand new people who are looking at me like they have to get over that, you know? And, and be, you know what I mean? Yeah. They're, they're, some of these people just had their first record. And <laughs> they can't believe they have to, like, do this stuff on their feet. They're not used to it. And to see them rise to the occasion blows me away. I just it, I feel very... Uh, uh, paternal about it, I mm -hmm. guess that's the right word. And then there's the veterans who are used to doing things their own way and used to doing these arrangements they've been doing for 30 years and 40 years. Kenny Loggins. Well, there's, there's a perfect one. In fact, I had to call him out on the show about it. <laughs> you can see that. <laughs> because he was trying to make it into the, like his live show. And I said, right. no, no, this is Daryl's house. This, forget it, Kenny. <laughs> Let's do it this way, Kenny. Let's not do it you know, the way you've been doing Change it. Change is a good thing, Kenny. Change is good. Change is good. And it's funny to see the veteran artists adapt to this like on the spot. Their brains are going like this. It's fun. Talk to me about flipping houses, or what's your term for it? Restoration? Uh, uh, losing a whole lot of money on houses. <laughs> <laughs> Tax write-offs. No, I wish. No, my other personality is totally immersed in history. And I grew up in old houses. I grew up with a family of people who worked on old houses and lived in old houses. You know, outside of Philadelphia, it's, you know. Historic. I lived near Valley Forge, for God's sake. <laughs> you know, I grew up in those kind of houses, the 1700s houses and everything. I used to go on job sites with my grandfather, who used to, was a stonemason and a brick person. He used to restore old chimneys and do all that kind of thing and, and actually build houses too. And so I would watch the construction of these things and, and I was very, I don't know, I really, really like that world I, it, because it's, it's not that dissimilar to music in some strange way. It's making something out of nothing. It's, you know, the, the, that whole old saw about architecture's frozen music. What's the first project you did in that regard, other than the apartment with John? Well, no, yeah, that was a whole house. That was the first one. <laughs> the house. That yeah, was the first this one. house was was taken over by people who, I guess, just I don't even know what it was. They ruined. They they basically gutted the house. But it was a house from about eighteen hundred, and uh, it was one of those small Philadelphia houses. Uh, they call them Father Son Holy Ghost houses because there's three rooms on three floors. It's a very typical small house in Philly. We were faced with the the shell of this house, so I basically got in there and started renovating it, and we did. We renovated it. I don't know how much John had to do with it, although he he likes this kind of thing as well. He actually became a general contractor when he built his house. He went to school for it, but he doesn't do historic houses. My thing is is historic houses. And how many have you done? I've done that one. I've done two in England. So if you're restoring houses in England, you're living over there. Oh, yeah. Well, I live in England as much as I live in America. Do you really? Mm. Well, outside of London? I live in, in London. We live in London. Yeah, Why? I don't know. I you just love it? I have family there. What I, family do you have? Well, my family is right. partly from England, but also I had a British wife and British kids now. How many kids do you have? I have two. And, and they're in England? Uh, one's in London and one was just uh, was in, in Charleston, South Carolina with me for a while. And she's now moving to L.A. Anybody in the music business? The two kids? Both of them. They're both. They Maybe both one of them work with you. Yeah. March, my daughter, she's a really good musician. We wrote a song a week ago. You're not married now. No. But wasn't one of your wives, your partner in well, doing was, the restoration she, of the houses? Amanda. She's unfortunately gone. She died. 
almost a year ago. Uh-huh. But um, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, she was did a lot of interior design things like that. So we we worked on. She the was houses. a good partner for that. Yeah, kind she of was work. really good about that. Right. Yeah, we we there, there's a house about three miles from here that we, that we worked on. And now I'm finishing it. So, do you own all your publishing? You have all your publishing? No, I. Uh, I was very stupid, like many people are uh, over the years, but I let's just say at the end, I, I own 25% of my publishing. You do? Yeah. Right. It's a, that's, a, that's a tough reality for some people, isn't it? Just to I, get I was, I was so stupid, I can't believe it. I did, I, but I didn't, you didn't know. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know right. that it meant everything. Right. Right. Yeah. And when you would write songs, you told me that you and he, it was, it was more he'd do his thing, you do your thing. I mean, truthfully, I, I've written the bulk of the songs. Right. Uh, I mean, it, I notice them when I read the list. Uh, yeah, but also it, it, a lot of this stuff, a lot of the the the, the if you look at the songwriting credits, a lot of the, the were very haphazardly attributed, you know. But uh, we did. I mean, uh, that's not to denigrate what we've done together for sure. Do you have any connection now, uh, currently, to Philadelphia and that in that area back there? I have a familial connection. My m- most of my family. Got there in the early 1700s and never left. There's no Daryl Hall scholarship at the Temple there's no School Darryl, of there's, Music. I, I do have a, a I do have a, a star on Broad Street. <laughs> I got that, and every year John and I do a festival in Philly called Hoagie Nation. <laughs> it's literally called. When is that? What time of year? It, it, Memorial Day weekend. It's a, a region that's defined by its fast food. It's New York without the ego. It's so elegant, and there's so much to do and see there. I love. Yeah, Philadelphia is a very special place. Yeah. Let me just finish with this, which is, why do you think it is that you can sing the way that you can? It has to do with how your brain works. You know, I'm a very spontaneous singer. I'm a very free singer. And uh, you don't know where you're going to go. Maybe I don't know where I'm going to go. No, once it's it's non-intellectual. It's there is no thought involved. It's total spontaneity. I'm just a bird that's opening my mouth and chirping away. And I've been lucky enough to be blessed with the physiology to pull that off. Singer and songwriter Daryl Hall. To hear the full episode of this conversation, go to heresthething.org. Danny Bennett has spent the past 30 years managing the career of his father, Tony Bennett. Danny helped introduce his father to a younger generation of fans through appearances on MTV, SNL, and The Simpsons. He also hatched the idea for a series of best-selling duets albums, which feature Tony Bennett with the likes of Lady Gaga, Billy Joel, Barbara Streisand, and Amy Winehouse. Danny produced a documentary called The Zen of Bennett, which follows his dad throughout the recording of the Duets 2 album. I was born in the Bronx, raised in Englewood, New Jersey. Now you grew up in the Bronx till you were how old? No, just like, you know, like two Briefly. years. Briefly, yeah, yeah, quickly. Yeah. And then you guys went to Englewood. Englewood, New Jersey. Why? Anglewood was an amazing place. It's sure. it's literally 15 minutes from Midtown, right across the George Washington Bridge. And I was born in 1954, 59 now. And it was a very exciting time. You had um, a lot of artists from kind of the showbiz thing. There was Tony. There was Dick Sean, Joey Bishop, um, they were Buddy the Hackett. River. They were just right there because the, the, they would just—Tony would come and do his sessions in the city at Columbia Studios— and then the jam session would continue in my house. Uh, so they were just like, hey, let's go back to the house. He had like a little studio. And when I say the basement, it was, a, you know, above ground basement kind of thing. You know, as a little kid, I'd wake up to the strains of like, you know, 
you know, Count Basie and then just amazing stuff. So when you were a kid, I suppose most people would assume, are those your childhood memories of being awash in <laughs> music of that period? Well, you know, it, it's I often say now, like, I feel like Forrest Gump. I mean, I I don't know why I had an appreciation for the moment. I, as a kid, I just did. It wasn't just music. Besides being able to sit on the piano stool with Duke Ellington, I mean, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. But I remember sitting on my dad's lap at a political rally with JFK running for president, you know, at the Teaneck Armory. He's sitting in back. There's Jack Kennedy giving a speech, and I'm seeing all the placards. You know, so it's like I'm always seeing the backside of things, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is an interesting perspective because that it's it's just a, that image burned in my brain. I, what was I? Eight or nine years old. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's those kind of things or Louis Armstrong and Carol Channing at the White House. You know, it's like— What's that? Or so people who sang standards and sang uh, whether they were Broadway tunes or they were standards by the Harold Arlins of the world and so mm-hmm. forth. But music for you, your personal music, was Dad going to the studio with Count Basie and you had an electric guitar in well, hand and you were singing Strawberry Fields. Well, or yeah, yeah. I mean, when I was ten years old, the Beatles hit, sure, and that was it for me. Right. And my brother, who plays drums, immediately I found an old guitar in my dad's closet, and he's been. Trying to learn guitar for a long time. Uh, so I grabbed <laughs> he's gonna it. He's going to get it eventually. He's going to get it eventually. No, he's going to get it eventually, I'm telling you. But anyway, it was like a Goya nylon string guitar. And he had a book of 2,500 chords, one of those like things. And I I just, I was so obsessed. I had to meet the, or introducing the Beatles record. And I'd put the needle down and then like, like go through the book and just like match the chord with the sound of the record. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a G chord, you know. It's like, and that's how I learned, you know, by ear how to play. What was the name of your band? Um, Quacky Duck. Right, right. And so, <laughs> so Quacky Duck is you and your brother. Yeah. And you have Quacky Duck, and you're how old? Uh, well, we were like sixteen at that. Okay, point. Okay, so you're teenagers. Yeah, like, yeah. like all garage bands, you're teenagers. Yeah. And then, but at that same time, do you still have like this kind of bicameral relationship with music? There's your dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And his music, and that's a presence yeah. in your life, and you have a, and you have a fondness for it. Yeah, of course. And an appreciation for uh, it. I mean, and then you're playing your. Yeah, well, I mean, some people don't necessarily. Ella Fitzgerald, Nat King Cole, um, Louis Armstrong. I mean, these are royalty, huge, royalty, and huge influences on us, and then obviously. You know, we all have our icons. You know, Tony's got has his icons, and and rightfully so. We're going to get to that. Yeah, yeah, cool. But 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 you're there, and what happens as you finish high school? Is there a time that you put down yeah, your yeah. own musical career? Yeah, yeah. When was that? Well, I mean, we were extremely serious about it. You know, when it was like we rehearsed on the week. You know, it was like after school, it. we did it. And then it's interesting because we were never kind of into sports, and that's what we did at a very early age. You know, we were doing, like, high school dances. And, and, and really, i got to be honest with you, I haven't learned much since then. You know, we learned how to, like, oh, wait a minute. You know what? We're selling tickets. You know, I remember going to, you know, the student union. You'd get paid 200 bucks, which was great in the 60s. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. a lot of money. Sure. So we, we, we kind of made it on our own. And the, the student union would go, um, oh, 200 bucks. And, I, and I'm like, man, oh, we're selling the tickets, like, to this show. So I, I would go to the student unions. i go, hey, look. I tell you what, you know what, you guys are always on the line. You don't know if you're going to make any money. No, no guarantee. We'll take a cut of the door. <laughs> we'll take 80, you take 20. And I'm this like, oh, is, this is where? This is at the high school. At the high school. Oh my and so God. they're going like, oh, you know, that's cool. Great. Yeah, yeah. we don't have to worry when you get our ass kicked. At the end of the night, I'm making 2500 bucks. 
And they're going like, well, well, wait a minute, you know? Mm. So then I just kind of like went from one school to another. Um, and you finished high school, and where'd you go? Um, we, we had a deal with Warner Brothers Records. And Who, you and We used your to brother. play Max's Kansas City and, you know, with, uh, I mean, Graham Parsons. I don't know if you know Graham. Of course. He was a good friend of ours. We toured with him. And, you know, we were like, those were our heroes um, at the time. And that's where I met Bonnie and John Prine. And, you know, I had this kind of really extraordinary wealth because also— his original tour manager was a guy named D. Anthony. He ended up being the the penultimate like rock manager, and invented the triumphant of promoter Bill Graham, D. Anthony, and the agent uh, Frank Barcelona. And they brought all these artists in from England. And we spent. I w- was raised at Fillmore. <laughs> we were kind of an art band. We played at Max's with the Modern Lovers and the the New York Dolls, and 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 we just said, let's come up with the most ridiculous name we can possibly come up with because we thought the Beatles was kind of a ridiculous name, mm-hmm. right? So we were kind of making fun of that. So we were serious about that, working, built studios and did that kind of thing. And it just got to a point where, you know, you know when you got it and you know when you don't. I, I was always so enamored by, especially the people I worked with and other writers in my band. I'd go like, I, I was kind of really good at like saying, wow, that's a great song. And I found that like that was my real mm-hmm. talent. <laughs> well, you know? But that's interesting. Yeah. And then when does one day someone say, Danny, it's you. You're going to start becoming involved in this bit yeah, in, yeah, in Tony yeah. Inc. Well, you know, it's interesting. And, and, and it's a Does it re- happen in a day? Is there an event no, that happens? It, well, kind of. And I, I can pinpoint when Tony kind of got on, like, hey, wait a minute, he may know what's going on. The Beatles for me was, you know, I was obsessed not only the art of it, but the you know the the social aspect of it, the marketing of it. Marketing was fun. It wasn't a bad word. The balance between art and commerce it was very much about what the Zen and Bennett is about. It's always been interesting to me. The Beatles always thought the two minute and forty seconds that they had that was their canvas. Mm-hmm. And how best to make that work? I love that concept. Mm-hmm. I love the constraints. Well, Tony always says there's free form. you got to learn form before you can be free. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a lot to that. You know, you, they couldn't have done Hey Jude without doing all those great songs that, boom, there they are, don't bore us, get to the chorus, but, but still maintain the art. So moving into a time when Tony was, um, again, we, we grew up around the, you know, it was just immersed. So, the, you know, the dinner table, the conversations were about what was happening at Columbia Records. Oh, my God, Clive Davis— he was, you know, became president of Columbia, the first attorney. It was a, a freaky thing. I was very tuned into that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but Sinatra didn't make either any of his daughters or his son the, the, his right-hand man. Well, that would have never happened. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to go there. But <laughs> Right. But your dad did. Yeah, well, he was at a point where the thing at Columbia, they tried to, you know, this happened to everyone. Sure. Sinatra, Barbara Streisand. And it was like, oh, you got to win sing the, the Beatles bead, catalog. beads and sing Barbara Streisand. They, they tried to get Barbara to sing Bob Dylan tunes. I mean, in 1969. Yeah. I mean, she's listening to Dylan going like, Blowing in the wind. what's yeah. this? You know, uh, so, Blowing in the winds. Uh, <laughs> the answer right. is blowing Thing. in the wind. Right. Bro- you know, brilliant idea. Cut. That's a great one. <laughs> Let's go again, Barbara. <laughs> so anyway, so Tony actually, you know, worked with Clyman, and he did an album that was kind of like that thing, and he got physically sick. He said he was, like, regurgitating between takes. <laughs> and so, well, that's a great story that, that he tells about Clive Davis. 
right, right. Um, where Duke Ellington went in and said, you know, uh, he thought he was going in to get a raise. And Clive Davis said, uh, well, I have some bad news for you. And he goes, uh, uh, what is it? And Clive's like, well, we're going to have to drop you from the label. Ellington goes, well, why? He says, well, you're not selling enough records. And Ellington goes, oh, I guess I had it. Mis- I was mistaken. I thought I was supposed to make the records, and you were supposed, supposed to, to sell them. them. It's a great. Yeah, that's my edict. Yeah, like, and I've heard that story when well, it that, happened. That's, that's every artist's, uh, ang- ang- you know, anxiety. But that, that was my. Thing. Someone said to me, "Why do I hate making movies?" And I said, and, "And I said, do you really hate making movies?" I said, "Well, maybe hate's a strong word, but I said I'm very uncomfortable." They say, "Why?" I say, "Because you just feel the hand yeah. of commerce at your throat every day. We're shooting. Every day. It's never free. It's yeah. rarely fun. It can be challenging, but you just feel." Like every dime is being counted. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they wanted your dad to do what he couldn't do. Yeah. And he rebels against that. And he just kind of like, they gave him a big contract and he was like, no, I don't want to do this. I want to start my own label. Now, now this is at a time when people weren't doing that. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, Sinatra did it with Mo Austin, but it was done more on a, you know, Warner Brothers thing. Um, and he found uh, Jack Rollins, um, Woody Allen's manager, mm-hmm. and a you know, number of other people, great people, uh, to work with him on, on a label called Improv. This is where he made the Bell Evans records, mm-hmm. you know, voice and piano. Those records weren't being made at the time. And so he came to me and talked to me about the label. And I said, oh, that's a great idea. I said, you know, it's, it's risky. And he said, well, what's risky about it? And I said, well, it doesn't seem like they have major distribution. In this day and age, independent distribution is great. You can do it. Internet, blah, blah. But then it was a real challenge. I said, Columbia's offering you to do a distribution deal, which is a great, you know, which is great. It's kind of like, you know, they leave you alone. You can do what you want to do. He had me go talk to the guy who was running a company in Buffalo. He said, well, go talk to him. Now, you know, I got the long hair and a fringe jacket. And I, and I, and I go to this, you know, this, guy, this hotel owner in Buffalo. And I'm sitting there and he's like, what the hell is this about? And I start talking about the distribution. I'm saying, yeah, it's great, da-da-da, boom. And there's some other things about the contract that I didn't like that I told him about, you know, in terms of him kind of getting roped into it. And this guy just rejected that whole notion. So I went back to Tony, and I just said, look, I I wouldn't do this. I, I think there's, you know. So no improv records? Well, no, he did it. He did it. <laughs> and, and how long did that last? It lasted like three years, and they failed because of the distribution. Right. So he does improv records, and then w- w- because— does, He can't get the records distributed. Exactly. exactly. And so, so that's what I told him. He remembered that. Right. And then the, the label folded, and then he was without a contract. For how long? Um, let's see. Like, I would say three years. Well, well, what three, was that like for him? Four years. Um, well, it's tough because remember at the time, this is like around 78, okay? Sinatra retired. Right. You didn't the Bee Gees are number one. And Streisand's doing duets with the Bee Gees. Yeah. Right? You know Barry what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah, you know what I'm saying? So, like, there's that. He didn't want to do it. And then he was in Vegas. And in those days, you were doing Vegas, like, you know, the 32-week the thing and all that stuff. Yeah. So, you know, he just called me up one day, and he was just like, I don't, you know, I need some help here. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. What he did didn't he have want? a manager. Um, he wanted to be able to do... <laughs> His art on his terms, um, and what um, was Vegas like for him? What, 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 what is that like for someone? Because I mean, you always figure. I remember reading Nick Tosh's book Dino about mm-hmm. Dean Martin, yeah, one yeah. of the one of the best biographies I've ever read. Yeah, yeah. And they talked about how Martin, at one point in the '60s, I believe, was the highest paid entertainer in the world. 
because he had the uh, he touched every base. He touched all four bases. He had a television show. He had a recording contract. He starred in films. And he uh, appeared live in Vegas in other right. concerts. And he yeah. was making millions and millions of dollars back then. And uh, I, I was wondering, for someone like your dad, where I'm not going to say that— I, I Actually, I don't know what Vegas exemplified back then. Like, for an actor, was that like being on a game show? Or oh, like, no, 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 no. So there was prestige to it. When, I mean, the, the idea that, you know, this is where they cut their teeth, the lounges. You know, Louis Prima in the lounge— you had Fred Astaire and Cary Grant going to see Sinatra and then going to the lounge, you know. And this is where the audience was like, yeah, you know. And Tony makes a good point. These people, it, we didn't have access to these people except the big screen. And all of a sudden, there they are, sitting there, right. watching Louis Prima, rubbing shoulders with, with uh, Sinatra and Cary Grant and whatever. This was magic. And for, for again, for Tony, you got to remember, Tony's 10 years younger than all these guys. These are his idols. Mm -hmm. You know, Sinatra called him the kid. Mm -hmm. you know? um, and there he is with them all. It's Fred Astaire. I mean, like it I— It was a salon. It was a salon. So, yeah. so it, and nobody messed around right. <laughs> for the very—you know, for the obvious reasons. Right. And then you got into kind of this, this evolution where, you know, the Summa Corporation and Howard Hughes took over. And, like, I had to negotiate with, like, Howard Hughes and these cowboys. It was really interesting. What was that like? Oh, it was amazing. You know, I mean, like, and this is where, like, Tony, when I first started working, and, like, you know, Howard uses on the top of the desert end. I mean, I know he's up there. And so there was, like, you know, this guy named Lenny, you know, <laughs> that he'd go in with me to negotiate the contract. And Lenny'd get on his hands and knees. What the fuck? I'm going, <laughs> seriously. And I'm going, what are you doing? And, like, get off your knees. I'm not going to get on my knees and beg for a contract. I'm just not going to do it. You know, and the guy. What was he saying? It's just saying, get down here, get down on your knees. <laughs> this is how it works here in Vegas. We well, get on our knees for Mr. Hughes. Yeah, yeah. And he's got the big, the guys behind the desk with a big cowboy hat. And I'm like, oh my God. So I go to Tony. And, and here's a very interesting thing. I'm sitting outside the desert and just like, you know, ugh. and I'm in a bench. Some dude comes and sits next to me, an older guy. And he's grumbling. And I turn around, and he's like, ah, I'm never coming back to Vegas again. Right? He's doing that kind of thing. I'm like, what's up? I don't know. You know, they used to fly me out here, and they used to, bah, they used to drop 50 grand a pop. But, but, man, did they make me feel good about losing my money? The shows, the girls, like that. He's doing this. He goes, they take it all away now. They don't want to know me. He says, this is, I'm never coming back again. And I had an epiphany. I was like, we got to get out of this town. Yeah. It's going down. Yeah. So I went to Tony, and I said to him, here's the gig. You got to get out of this town. I know this is like, this is what and you're And go where? To. And I said, you go to the people. We're going to go to colleges. What year? 79. Th this is the point in which you kind of climb into the cockpit with this guy who's this legend, and you're 25 years old. <laughs> now, yeah, no, I no, know, no, I But know, what you're teaching know, me in the conversation is that from the beginning, you were just saturated and inundated yeah, and yeah. interested, naturally, not just in it on a creative level, but on a business level as well and on a technical level. Growing up as, you know, in that environment where kids were befriending me because the parents knew that if they befriended me, maybe they could have dinner with Tony at the thing. I developed an early sense of, like, cutting through the crap. You know, it's like I knew who my friends were and who, who they weren't. Right. I could tell right away. Right. So I had this epiphany, and I said, you know what? I'm going to run him for president. I'm going to treat his campaign. I'm a, I love history, too, so I do mm -hmm. love it. 
And I'm like, I'm going to run. I'm going to do this like I'm running for president. And I went to him and I said, you know, presidents would not go to Iowa if they didn't have to go to Iowa and, and, and you know, shake the hands. I go, instead of having people come to you in Vegas, I said, your music transcends, right? And it, you can't do this with everybody. And I, and I have an appreciation, you know, I watched Tony when, you know, how many times have I seen the show? He's reinventing himself. He's really kicking ass. I mean, in terms of like taking chances, that's really rock and roll. He's taking chances. You know, the Rolling Stones are getting older, not really taking chances mm-hmm. anyway. And here's Tony, what he calls moving the furniture around. Yeah. And I'm like, people just got to see this. There's a transcendent quality and great art that, like he says, defies demographics. Danny Bennett on his father, Tony Bennett. If you're enjoying this conversation, be sure to follow Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Danny Bennett talks about Tony Bennett's 1994 MTV Unplugged album. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual-wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. When you have a career as long-lasting and successful as Tony Bennett's, it's helpful to have people around who you can trust. And Danny Bennett says his father respected his opinion from a very young age. It's interesting because we never related that way. So 
he kind of always related to me as an adult. Danny, I want to talk to you. Son, I don't want you to be my son anymore. I want you to be my accountant. He treated you like you were. It was kind of like, like that. You were a business associate. No, he would. A producer, the, a partner. At the age of 12, he would come to me and he'd go like, oh, I don't know, I got this thing. and blah, blah, blah. What do you think? He didn't delineate. And you know what? I mean, you know, it's like, I guess, you know, at the turn of the century, kids at 12 and 13 were working the fields. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like yeah. they were doing operating They were given machinery. responsibility. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of that. This was working in the fields for you. This was working in the fields. You know, it wasn't like. Go throw a baseball in the driveway. Yeah. And, and, and you know, celebrity, we couldn't go to the zoo. Right. It was impossible. I mean, he took me to one movie, uh, Planet of the Apes. I remember one movie. And that's okay. Danny, we're never going to the movies <laughs> together again. I'm sorry. I love you, son. But I'm going to build a theater out there in Englewood. Exactly. I'm going to watch the movies with Count Basie every Friday night. And then that's that's that, you know. But I always dug the fact that, like, I got to go to the Copacabana, <laughs> you know. So the 80s go by, and you're in this phase where you're going to build RPM. Yeah. You're going to build his, your company. You're going to do what you want to do your way. But when did you know it was going to work? Were you, I mean, I don't mean to be corny and cinematic about it, but are you standing there one night in the wings and he's out there and you go, it's working? No, I'll tell you when it was. Uh, Bob Guccione Jr. Uh, was the editor of Spin Magazine. And I was reading it. They were interviewing him in his own magazine and asked him what he thought was the most influential thing about rock and roll, people in rock and roll. He said two people, James Brown and Tony Bennett. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's wild, man. James Brown and Tony Bennett. And this is Spin Magazine, you know, it's like the Pixies and the. And then I went on to read, and the guy's like, well, why? Oh, you understand James Brown, why Tony Bennett? He said, because he's always taking chances. It's like what I said. And this is what I was thinking about Tony. I'm picking up, he's picking up this vibe on Tony. You know, it's like, the, you know, I, I, I say Tony never sings the same thing once. He's, <laughs> he doesn't, he calls it moving the furniture around. He doesn't know, there's no such thing as complacency. And now we're watching our, you know, the big idols kind of get corporate, you know, with the stones and doing their thing. And mm -hmm. they're, they're like cookies cutter. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, Bob Guccione's talking about this being like, you know, the guy's an innovator. So I, I called him up. It led to kind of the, you know, they would do these, these fashion spreads. And I said, why don't we do something with the Chili Peppers and Tony and we could have fun with it. So we did a show at the Hard Rock Cafe in L.A. with the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Tony. The Chili Peppers were punk at that time, mm -hmm. right? Before Rick Rubin got them. Um, and I said that in a, <laughs> a complimentary way. Just in an observational way. In a, <laughs> no, in a musicological they, 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 they went, way. They, they did a good job. From there, it was just kind of like, wait a minute. You know, are you a snob because your father's a snob? Or is your father a snob because you're a snob? <laughs> I'm not a snob. Uh, okay. that was, we're we're going to come back to that. I like I'm not letting you off the hook. I'm not letting you off the hook there, buddy. <laughs> Um, so he's so, with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. No, so then I'm like, well, you know what? Um, I was managing some other bands at that time in Boston. And then so, like, I kind of got into this notion, like, there were the alternative rock stations. And they did these college rock radio shows at, like, RFK stadiums with Nine Inch Nails and da-da-da. So I was like, gee, I wonder if, like, I pitched them, you know, about Tony being on the bill, if this would be novel enough for them. And I pitched it. We're down at Washington, D.C., RFK Stadium. And there's Tony. And we're at RFK, 60,000 kids. It's P.J. Harvey. He's going on between P.J. Harvey and Nine Inch Nails, Trent Reznor. Oh my God. And what happened? <laughs> well, Tony's standing here looking. And he goes, 
can I ask you something? <laughs> and he goes, would Frank do this? And I said, nope, and that's why you're doing it. And he goes, okay, I get it. And he goes out, kills, man. God. Kills. God. I mean, and we were all, <laughs> you got to take chances, you know, like we don't take yeah. chances anymore. And he kills. If, they, if it's good, they're going to dig it. They're going to dig it, and they wouldn't let him off the stage. Just as the trio. Look, I consider myself a dragon slayer for Tony. He calls me up once a month, I swear to God. Says, you know what, I just want to thank you once again that I never have to talk to another record executive <laughs> in my entire life. I helped him unblocked mm -hmm. the, the artistic channel. Mm -hmm. So I consider myself a, you know, a dragon slayer mm -hmm. as far as that's concerned. And, and, and I think that, that that's, my, that's what I'm proudest of as far as that's concerned. You know? So you go through this period— the 80s and the 90s and, and then so then we forth. did the MTV. But then, like, out of—because the, 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 those concerts were—I said, this, I'm, doing, I'm doing L.A., K-Rock. I'm doing, So I did, like, five of these things. Then he comes into me one day, and he goes, you know—and now I'll do Tony. You know, I was watching um, MTV. I think I can do really well on TV. And then just walks out of my office. And I'm like— Okay. Yeah, I'll get on that. <laughs> I'll get on Let that. me make a call. <laughs> well, you know. And then Hello, I'm MTV. Like, no, but that's Tony, man. Yeah, no. You know, and I'm why, like, why not? I got it. Well, Tony spelled backwards is what? Why not? That's what I say. Anyway, so then it was kind of like, well, how am I going to do this? You know, John Stewart had a new show. They didn't really have artists. I said, well, I'll put Tony on the John Stewart show. And I kind of sold that idea and Doug Herzog, who now is a Comedy Central. Um, at the time, and, and it was like, hmm, you know, hmm, that could be interesting. And then, this is around 88 now. They dug it, <laughs> so they put him on. Then, and then it was like, then I'm kind of— How did he feel? He's, he's cool. Here, here's your father who, like any artist with a career that lasts decades, technological advance and change becomes another mountain for him to climb. Well, and no. now he's on a television music channel. Did no, he love it? No, did he dig he, it? Here's the thing. It's the audience. His audiences were getting older, and when we were in front of that young audience, oh, it's up here. Mm -hmm. And then he became 20 years old, I mm -hmm. swear to God. Mm -hmm. like, I watched him. You know, he just rises to the occasion from that audience. So he doesn't like to do arenas and things. Like that. He, like, he, he feeds off of that. And here's the deal. So it was like they came, and it was like, you know, we got unplugged. Um, that'd be interesting to what do unplugged. So I was like— yeah, fantastic. So seriously, man. Got all the MTV people, all the record people, and they start going, great, you know, we got this is going to be fantastic. Tony's going to sing Within and Without You, a Bono song, and like Runaway Train. And, and I was like, whoa, whoa. I said, you know what, guys, I really appreciate this, but this is, this is a train wreck. Never going to happen. And I walked out. And then they said, well, come back in. What are you talking about? I said, listen. You guys are MTV. This was in the day of MTV. I said, you guys got balls. That's, that, that, there's no balls to do. What's going to take balls is to do Tony's music and have them sing Tony's music. And I said, that's balls. That's MTV. Whose idea was the duets album? Well, Origi that, originally. I mean, you know, it's not. it wasn't an original idea. No, but I'm saying, but for I him, thought that th th those are very point, complicated things to do. The point To, to lasso all those people, yes, isn't yeah. that a pain in the ass? Yeah. You know, you, you had Sinatra, and then you had um, uh, Ray Charles. I mean, he sold 15 million records. Mm -hmm. um, pretty good idea. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so I'm like, you know, how do I go and reinvent Tony? You know, we, and then we went on with MTV to win Album of the Year with the Grammys, got a lot of people upset. You know, I was like, what's going on with that? But when you look at it, 
you know, Alec, it's like he heralded in the iPod generation. You can listen to Tony and Billie Holiday and also listen to Pearl Jam and, you know, it didn't matter. So kids started opening up to mm -hmm. that. He's, you know, he. I give him a lot of credit for that. Now, your father has you uh, in, in his corner, obviously, for many, many years now. His own son is flesh and blood. He has a wife. Your stepmother, who is obviously is uh, omnipresent and around all the time yep. with him, he's got two people who are taking good care of him, and he's getting on in years. I mean, and, and my and my brother's been producing and, and, his and, records and your, for and, your yeah. and, and, and I'm assuming that a lot of it is you got to take as much stress off him as possible because because he's working a full schedule. Yeah, well, and he's eighty. What years old? He's going to be eighty-seven. And he's still going. Well, I mean, a lot of people don't look at me and go like, "What are you doing?" You know, leave him, leave him be. No, no. And well, then well, I, they do. Oh yeah, and I'm oh. like, uh, it's not me. Right. I mean, seriously, I, I, I'm very, you know, conscientious of his age. The guy doesn't like to take elevators. He takes. He doesn't like to take escalators. He'll. We go to airports. He's up the stairs. He's the first one. But <laughs> I mean, keeping up with him is a challenge. And when Out here in the stars. My thanks to Daryl Hall and Danny Bennett. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the thing is brought to you by iHeart Radio. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Spentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.